So if you have your Bible, I want you to turn to Acts chapter 18, because we're here for a little biblical education today. If you don't have your Bible, our ushers are going to be coming down the aisle. They've got a Bible that you can use. They've actually got a Bible you can have today. So if you didn't bring your Bible, but you want to follow along in a Bible today, every Sunday we're going to open our Bible and read from it. Just wave at the ushers. They'll give you one. We've passed out more than a thousand Bibles, given away more than a thousand Bibles just like this. So if you don't have a Bible, put your name in this one and just keep it and bring it back with you next week. And in Acts chapter 15, about a month ago, we kind of hit the pinnacle of the book of Acts when the church in the book of Acts decided that their strategy, that their mission was going to be to reach people, as, reach as many people as they could, and then to teach people spiritually, grow people spiritually um, as deep as they could. So in Acts 15, the strategy of the church became twofold. Let's reach as many as we can, and let's grow them as deep spiritually as we can. And the rest of the book of Acts, I said, was a story in how they came about doing this. And we, the last three weeks, have been studying Acts 16, 17, and 18. And the church's efforts have gone from good to bad to last week we saw it at its worst. We saw... Um, that the Apostle Paul, not every city he went into, a church was founded. We see that not every sermon he preached, somebody responded to. We see that not everyone was kind or friendly to him all the time. And we caught the Apostle Paul last week in Acts 18.1, spending about a week of his life alone in despair, in discouragement, trying to figure out if he should quit. And we, we found the power of partnership and relationship in the gospel and in the first century church to be huge. It was the thing that allowed Christians who were tired and who wanted to quit to keep going, their friendships within their churches. So we've been talking about small groups. We've been talking about this test drive event. For those of you who are not yet involved in small groups, you need to be. You say, how can I check out a small group without getting all in? Tonight, Pastor Ryan will tell you about an event we're having over in Longview at the Gusto Coffee House. For about two hours, you can try out a small group, see if you like it, give us some feedback about how we can find one that fits you. But we've been talking about how partnership, relationships are really the backbone of our faith. Some of you are new to this church and you, you've not yet decided how you're going to get all in. Your next step is to come to our new attender luncheon, meet some people, connect with people, partner with people, have lunch with us after church in September, hear how you can be engaged. Because what we find in the New Testament church, if you haven't pulled out your notes already, do that from the bulletin. The strategy of the New Testament church in the book of Acts was to assemble and equip small groups of people to grow spiritually together to minister to one another, and to make a difference in the world. This was their strategy. This was their reality. This is the story of the book of Acts. The pastors went out, and their strategy was to assemble and equip small groups of people who would get together to grow spiritually, to minister to one another, take care of one another, and to make a difference in the world together. And this strategy is never more apparent than in the second half of Acts chapter 18. We see the only way the church was going to work is if people would assemble and be equipped as small groups to grow, to minister, and to make a difference. And in Acts chapter 18, verses 18 through 28, we see this strategy kind of play out in front of us, and it's beautiful what we see of the church taking ownership through small groups for its own growth, ministry, and impact. And here's what we read in Acts 18, verse 18. It says, Paul stayed on in Corinth, for some time. He was there, we know, for 18 months, teaching every day, establishing a church. Then he left the brothers and sisters, and he sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Syncre because of a vow he'd taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue, and he reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, I prom he promised, I'll come back if it's God's will. 
Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and he greeted the church. And then he went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man, which means he'd had formal education, with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him into their home, and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, that is, back to Corinth, Achaia was kind of the, the region where Corinth was located, The brothers and sisters encouraged him, and they wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed, for he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, we said on the first Sunday of January this year that we were going to study the book of Acts all year long for two reasons. We said we're going to look to the book of Acts for inspiration and for information. We're going to look back to the book of Acts and we're going to be inspired about what a group of people can become and accomplish if they will partner together to not just go to church but to become the church God wants them to be. So we said we're going to be inspired by what we learn about Acts. But then we're going to be informed. We're going to ask questions about our church and we're going to look to the answer for Acts. We're going to say how should we do church and we're going to look to the book of Acts and let that answer our question. And we're going to continue to study the book of Acts. We begin next week a series called The Best Yes. We're going to talk about how to, in a world where it's so difficult to say no, in a world where we say yes to so many things that our yes hardly means anything at all, we're going to talk about how if we can learn to say the best yes, if we can learn how to find God's purpose for our life and say yes to that first, that everything else can revolve around that as we dig into Acts chapter 19 and we see Paul make some difficult life decisions based on saying yes first to God's purpose. After that, for four weeks, we're going to get into a series called Shipwrecked. We're going to follow the Apostle Paul from Jerusalem to Rome, and we're going to experience a terrible, tragic shipwreck with him. And we're going to talk about what happens when life seems to be falling apart, and we don't know if it'll ever come together. The second week of that series, on October 11th, We've got one of the foremost Christian archaeologists in the world coming who has found and located the shipwreck of the Apostle Paul in Acts 18. He followed the life of the Apostle Paul. They have found remnants from the ships he were on. We know that because the book of Acts said these were the ships that he was on and here's what they look like. And he's going to talk to us about just how we can trust the Bible and why as Christians we can line up history together with scripture and say, I I trust the narrative of what really happened. It's going to be one of the greatest Sundays. All of you have friends who are a little skeptical spiritually, you need to invite them October 11th and let me have a Q&A with what, what, who's known as kind of the Indiana Jones of the Christian world and talk to him about Mount Sinai. He's been there. Talk to him about Noah's Ark. He's been on expeditions with Josh McDowell to locate that. Talk to him about the shipwreck of Paul. Talk to him about why we can trust the narrative of Scripture because these places are real and they found so many of them. It's going to be absolutely awesome. But today in Acts chapter 18, we're looking for inspiration, but we're looking for information We see some incredible information on how our church needs to be shaped to have maximum spiritual impact in our community. Here's the reality of doing life together as a church. There's not one person in this church who could have made this happen all by themselves. There are some people in this church who could have struck a check for $12,500 and paid for all this, but they could not have gone out and bought it all and stuffed it all and assembled it all and got it ready. There are some people who would have given hundreds of hours to do all the shopping and put everything together, but they didn't have the ability to 
to pay or fine $12,500 to do this. All of us could have had a little bit of an impact, but together we have massive impact. And what we're learning today in the book of Acts is the way church has to be done to have maximum impact in a community in the way it was done in the book of Acts so that they had maximum impact on the world. And I want to show you three things today. I think there's some great challenge in all three points. And I think everyone, I think everyone's going to be touched in a different way by what you learn and what you hear today. Here's the first thing we see in Acts chapter 18, learning about the way church has to be done for it to have great impact. Ministry transitions lead to ministry expansion. Ministry transitions... You could maybe on your notes write handoffs above transitions. Ministry handoffs. Moving ministry from one person to another actually helps expand ministry. Look at Acts 18, verses 18 and 19. And then we'll flip down to verse 27. Because something happens in Acts chapter 18 that we believe would probably lead to less ministry being done. Or at least in the arrogance of pastoral ministry, maybe we would believe this. In verse 18, it says this, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, underline the next three words, then he left. Then he left. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time, then he left. He left the brothers and sisters and he sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Syncrate because of a vow he'd taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left, underline those three words or circle. So he, he was in Corinth, he did a little ministry there, then he left. Then, then they went to Ephesus, and he stayed for a week there, then, then he left. He left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue, he reasoned with the Jews. Flip down to verse 27. When Apollos wanted to go, uh, circle those words, wanted to go. So we see in the book of Acts, ministers, ministry leaders, pastors, small group leaders, who will enter a situation, they'll enter a group, they'll enter a town, they'll enter a city for a time, they'll get some ministry started, And then they'll leave. We would look at that in terms of a church and say you can never build a ministry that way. If if as a pastor, Christian, if you would plant a church and every 18 months you would plant a church and then leave, none of those churches would last. Not probably the way we do church in America. Because a lot of it is just about coming to hear the pastor speak. But we see in the New Testament, the New Testament strategy was you would kind of lean in, you would get a ministry going, and then you would leave. Paul left. Apollos, he learned a little bit in Ephesus, he got some training, and then he left and he went someplace else. Silas and Timothy, last week we saw them hanging out in Philippi, then they left Philippi and they came to see Paul at Corinth, then they all left together. There was this constant leaving in Scripture. And you have to ask this question, what was the role of these church leaders who kept transitioning? What, what was the strategy of ministry for these leaders who would pop into a place, stay for a little bit, and then they would go? What? What was the thought? What was the process? What was the system for ministry in the New Testament? It's a great question, and it actually has a great answer. This question, I believe, was actually asked of the Apostle Paul by the people in Ephesus that we saw him say, I don't have, right now I don't have time for you. We saw that in Acts 18. He went to Ephesus, he went to the synagogue one week, and they said, man, come back next week, and he said, I can't, and he left. He said, but if God wills, I'll come back. Later he did come back for two years, then he left again. What was the thought of these pastors that kept stepping in and then transitioning? If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4, because I can actually give you the answer of how the New Testament church operated to have maximum ministry impact. Ephesians is just a few chapters back to the right in your Bible. Ephesians chapter 4, 
in verses 11 through 16, I think the Apostle Paul was asked this question, why do you keep starting ministries and then leaving? What's the purpose of you stepping in, getting something going, but then you leave it? What's the purpose of this? So Paul, writing to this church in Ephesus, we'll study this quite a bit for the next six weeks in in our Best Yes series, says this to the church of Ephesus in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. He says, here's why we do church the way we do church. He said, according to his, that's God's eternal purpose, that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hang on, I'm in Ephesians 3. I didn't think that sounded right. All right, here we go, here we go, here we go. 11. So, Christ, there we go. So Christ himself gave the apostles, here's, here was their role. So Christ gave apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers, Christ, here was their job, to equip his people for works of service so the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we'll no longer be infants, spiritual babies. We talked about this last week. Tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body from him who's the head, that's Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So say, Paul, what's the strategy of, what's the strategy of stepping into an area, getting it going and then leaving? And then stepping into another area, getting it going and then leaving? And then, you know, maybe getting a small group going and then stepping out of it. Like, what's the purpose behind all that? And Paul says, good question. And he answers the question. He said, the role of church leaders in the book of Acts, according to what Paul wrote in Ephesians 4, was to train people. The primary goal of the church leader was to step in and train people in, an, in an Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, he said, you need to train the people to do these eight things. Train them to do ministry. Train them to build people up. Train them on how to bring people together. Train them in how to teach people about God. Train them in how to grow others spiritually. Train them how to confront people gently. Train them how to connect people to Jesus. Train them to grow people in love. And if we were to stop right now, let's just stop right now. And if we were to look at those eight things and say, okay, whose responsibility is it at Journey? Whose responsibility is it at our church? Whose responsibility are these eight things at Journey? Most people will look at that and say, well, that's the staff. It's the pastors. It's the pastor's job to do those things. It's the pastor's job to to do ministry. It's the pastors, you and Ryan and Scott and Jason and Jamie. It's the staff's job to build people up and bring people together and teach people about God and and grow people spiritually and and confront people when they're in sin and connect people to Jesus and to help the whole church grow. Like that's, Christian, that's your job. Paul would say, no, that's your job. Paul would say, the job of the pastor that transitions in and out, the job of the pastor is to train the people to be the church. And then the people, because you'd rather have in, to, in today's case, in here, you'd probably rather have 180 people doing this than one. There's just more impact when you have 180 people doing ministry instead of one. There's just more impact when 180 people know how to gently confront somebody who's going the wrong direction than one. There's just a whole lot more impact when 180 people know how to connect somebody to Jesus than when one does. There's just way more impact when everyone says we're going to help with the backpacks than when one does. And we see in the book of Acts this system where... The, the apostle kind of jumps in and out. And you're like, well, what's he doing? He's teaching people 
to come together in small groups to love each other, to grow each other, to build each other, to minister to one another, to be aware of and active in meeting needs, and then he's leaving them to do more ministry. Because in Acts chapter 18, the above eight things are occurring in Corinth. They're occurring in Macedonia. That's the church at Philippi. They're occurring in Ephesus. They're occurring in Antioch, which is the region of Achaia. And they're occurring, according to the Apostle Paul and all the churches of Galatia, over a, over a geographical span of 1,500 miles. All of these things are occurring in all these places. Why? Because the church wasn't dependent on Paul to do them all. And Paul said, if it's up to me, I can only do one place at a time. But if I can train people, motivate people, convince people to take ownership and responsibility and help in ministry, if the church will minister to itself, if the church through small groups will make sure that everyone is ministered to, man, a whole lot more people can be ministered to than if it's just up to one person. And did you know for the first 300 years of church history, there were no local churches that actually like had a, had a pastor? There was so little education and training available to people that there was one evangelist who would travel over a broad area or there was what maybe they called a bishop 300 years ago and the church leaders. And those bishops might go to every church one time a year. And in that one visit to the church a year, they would teach the church how to do ministry for a year. And then that church would exist basically saying, hey, we're the church and you tell us what to do, but we'll do it. We don't need you to do all the ministry for us. And every year he would come back, and over 300 years, we see more growth in the church over 300 years when there were no pastors than we have in the last 300 years where everyone has a pastor. Because here's what has happened, is education and training have become more available. There are more professional pastors like me who have gone to college to be a pastor and who, who have a role, a job as a pastor. And those pastors get connected in churches, and there are two numbers that I don't believe are coincidental that are true in the American church today. The first number is ministry capacity. Researchers will tell you that a pastor has ministry capacity of about 25 families, which means I can be a great, hands-on, 24 hours a day, seven days a week pastor to 25 families. I can meet every need that they have. They estimate that at about 80 to 85 people. One pastor can be a great pastor to between 75 and 85 people, meet all their needs. Is it a coincidence that the average size church in the United States of America is 78 people? Think about that. One pastor can do a good job with about 80 people. And the average church is about 80 people. You know why? Because they say he does the ministry. He takes care of us. We don't take care of each other. Because if the church would begin to take care of each other, it would grow beyond what one man could do. Or maybe you hire another pastor and you go to 150 people. Because two people, Christian and Ryan can take care of 150. But in the early church, the strategy was that the people will take care of the people. And only when ministry responsibilities are transitioned to more people can a church have more impact. I mean, that's just, that's simple math. Two can do more than one. Four can do more than two. Eight can do more than four. But only when a ministry handoff occurs. Hey, we got this thing started in Corinth. Priscilla and Aquila, George now. I'm out. Because I'm going to start another one. Not because I'm going to go rest, but because I'm going to do more. And then Priscilla and Aquila say, okay, Paulus, we're out now, but you take it. Until the church allows ministry to be transitioned, this doesn't happen. But believe it or not, this is a twofold issue. Because we have many leaders at Journey 
who say, I am willing to be a minister. I am willing to be a small group leader. I am willing to be a ministry leader. I am willing to shepherd as many people as I can and to lead and to help grow and build. But most people in today's churches, especially if you're like me and you come from a very small church, you won't accept ministry from anybody but the guy you see on the stage. And we have people in our church that end up in the hospital. And everyone in their small group goes to see them. And someone who leads their ministry goes to see them. And they have meals given to them for a month. And they get mad at our church and never come back. And when we finally call them and say, why? They say, because Christian never came to see me. Because we don't accept ministry from anybody but the guy on the stage. We don't accept ministry from anybody except from the professional pastor. If the early church had waited on the professional pastor to meet all their needs, there never would have been a church. The professional pastor actually slows things down because he becomes an idol in people's eyes. And please don't ever idolize me or even probably think I'm more spiritual than you. I'm trying and I'm trained and I'm being coached well. But the only thing that puts me on the stage is God allowing this to be my gifting to the church. I'm not here because I'm at the top of the class spiritually. And the church grows in impact and in ministry when, when people are willing to minister to other people, but not just willing to minister until we're all willing to be ministers to one another and accept ministry from one another, we won't reach our full potential as a congregation in our community. Because a whole church committing to a backpack project reaches more than one person committed to a backpack project. And you see the words in quotes there, one another? This phrase, one another, by the way, it's used 98 times in the New Testament described to describe how the church ministered. The church ministered one to another. They fellowshiped with one another. They prayed with one another. They ate meals with one another. They cried with one another. How did the early church work? One another. People came together and ministered to people. It was small groups that were brought together, assembled and equipped to grow spiritually, to learn spiritually, to take care of one another, and to make an impact. That's why you need to get engaged in a small group so our church can have maximum impact in your life. It's why you finally need to start serving in a ministry so our church can have maximum impact in this community. Until we all lean in and do church together, we won't have the impact that Jesus wants us to have. Secondly, in Acts chapter 18, I love this. We see women in spiritual leadership in a major way, actually in three different cities, we see women in spiritual leadership. I'm going to read the exact same verses again. Acts chapter 18, verses 18, 19, and then I'll skip down to verse 26. But we see this woman who has a major leadership role in the early church. It says, Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and he sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Underline their names. Note that Priscilla is listed first. It's important. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Syncre because of a vow he'd taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. Again, underline the names. Note that Priscilla is listed first. He himself went into the synagogue. He reasoned with the Jews. Flip down to verse 26 talking about Apollos, it says he began to speak boldly in the synagogue when Priscilla and Aquila, underline their names, note that Priscilla is listed first. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and they explained to him the way of God more accurately. Listen, the clear involvement of women involved in leadership with the ministry of the Apostle Paul should encourage every woman in this congregation to lead strong spiritually. 
2,000 years ago, when you were writing a text, you would never, just because of the culture of the day, list a woman's name before her husband. It would be like you, gentlemen, and some of you might say this is totally archaic, but it is culturally, it'd be like you taking your wife's name when you got married. That, that's how rare it would be for a couple to be listed with the wife's name first. It would be like you, when you got married, taking your wife's last name. I did a wedding yesterday. I've done probably hundreds. I've never done a wedding where the man has taken the wife's name simply because, culturally speaking, just doesn't happen. So outside of even how important it is, just culturally it didn't happen. So for Luke, three times in the book of Acts, and it was actually four, Priscilla and Aquila are listed six times in the book of Acts, four times her name is first. For, her to put her, for Luke to put her name first must have meant that she held a, an extremely prominent position in ministry leadership, a bigger position of ministry leadership than her husband. And Luke knew when the story of church was read about, a lot more people would recognize Priscilla than Aquila because of how, long, how, how strong she was leading spiritually. And it's my hope that at our church, we are known for the spiritual strength of the women in our church who buckle down and follow Jesus regardless sometimes of what their husband and their kids want to do. Did you know that God was going to kill Moses until his wife stepped in? Were you aware of this? Moses, one of the greatest leaders that God ever called. God called Moses and he said, you need to lead the people out of bondage. Did you know that if Moses' wife Zipporah had not stepped in, do you know God was going to kill Moses? Do you know that? Here's the way that Exodus describes it in Exodus 4, 24 through 26. Let, let me set the backdrop. So God went and spoke to Moses in a burning bush, and he said, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go. And then Moses threw down a staff, and it turned into a snake. I, I, told, I, I would have been done right there. Like, as soon as it turned into a staff, so you, you, you got the wrong guy. Like, if you're going to do snake stuff, I'm out. I don't want to be a Hebrew or an Egyptian. I, I, I just don't want to do that. Um, but Moses picked up the snake, and it became a staff. Did all that. Somewhere in the dialogue, God must have said, before you, go to, before you go to rescue the Israelites, your sons have to look like Israelites. You need to circumcise your sons because this would have been the sign that Moses and his family were devout Jews before he went to meet the people. And for some reason, Moses did not want to do that. He didn't want to circumcise his boys. Um, having seen that process, I can understand maybe why he didn't want to do that, but he was disobedient to God in disobeying that order. So God was coming to kill him. God was like, you're not going to follow my directions, I'm just going to take you out. So in Exodus 4, 24 through 26, it says, there's a lodging place on the way. They're going back to Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. The Lord met Moses and was about to kill him. But Zipporah took a flint knife, she cut off her son's foreskin, and she touched Moses' feet with it, and says, surely you're a bridegroom of blood, so the Lord left him alone. Had his wife not stepped up and said, we're going to do what God says, God would have killed Moses. Think about this. Moses was just asleep. And some of the men in our church are asleep spiritually. And some of you wives know it. Moses is laying in the tent. And all of a sudden, it's like, what's that? And he looks down. He's like, what in, you know, like, what in God's name, woman, are you doing? Did you just... Throw a foreskin at me for God's sake. I mean, this has got to be an awkward conversation, right? I'm just reading the Bible. I'm not trying. I mean, it's just, this is weird, right? Like, this, this is weird. What are you doing? And she's like, Moses, for God's sake, if you will not do what God has told you, I will. She stepped up and she led. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians, talking about women just leading. He says, if a woman has a husband who's not a believer but he's willing to live with her. She shouldn't divorce him. 
For the unbelieving husband has been sanctified. That means set apart, made different through his wife. And the unbelieving wife has, sanctified, has been sanctified through a believing husband. Otherwise, your children will be unclean. But as it is, they're holy. They're going to be different because a wife chooses to lead. And the reality is rarely, rarely do I see men fully engaged spiritually without their wife really leaning in spiritually and living for God. And the reality is, I almost always see men kind of raise their game spiritually when the women in their life start running full speed spiritually. I just, it just always seems to occur that way. Believe it or not, it happened that way with me. I didn't really lean into who God created me to be until I met and started dating Danielle. And there were two things in my relationship with Danielle in the first month that I was dating Danielle that let me know I needed to marry her. And they were spiritual moments in my life that made me a better man spiritually. Um, the first was the first time we went swimming together. And you say, how is that a spiritual moment? Well, you know, I'd never dated a Christian girl before. Um, so I, didn't, I don't know what I anticipated of a Christian girl, but I, I'd never dated a Christian girl. Um, so I just thought there would be, you know, like I, I just thought there would be something angelic, holy, spiritual about a Christian girl. And, and something as, as odd as this sounds, um, that you would be like attracted to everything but the physical nature of a spiritual girl because the spirit was so soft. And we went swimming together. And I'm not sure what I anticipated, a, a godly girl looking like in a bathing suit. Um, but have you, ever, um, have you ever seen Gidget? Like for those of you who are my age, like have you ever seen a nun? Um, like with the black dress and the collar and sleeves and all the way down and the little hat. Um, like it wasn't anything like that. But I think that's what I was anticipating. And I remember when Danielle walked out of the house and she took off town and got ready to, to jump in the pool. I remember just saying, thank you, Jesus. Like, I, like that was, so it was a spiritual moment for me. I was just like, thank you. Like, I'm not even Catholic. But like, Father God and holy smokes. It was like, wow. Um, thank you, Jesus. So that, that was one, not really spiritual, but that, that got my attention. But a week, a week after that, thank you, Jesus. Um, a, week, a, week, a week after that, I was getting ready to play my first college football game. Um, Danielle and I had eaten dinner together at the school cafeterias. Thursday, we were going to load up on the bus and go play Appalachian State in Boone, North Carolina um, that weekend. And I was nervous, really, really nervous. And Danielle could sense that I was nervous. You remember, I never dated a Christian girl. So we're sitting in the car, getting ready to drive back to the dorms. And she said, are you nervous about the game this week? I said, yeah, I am. And she said, well, can I pray for you? I said, absolutely. But like I thought that meant like back at her dorm room or like the next time she prayed for a meal. Like I never thought she would pray like that. She's like, well, can I pray for you? I was like, yeah. She said, okay. And she started praying. Like she bowed her head and started praying like out loud with me right there. And I remember as she prayed, I kept my eyes open and I was looking at her while she was praying. I'd never had that happen to me before. And I thought, I got to marry her. If there's a girl who's willing to pray out loud for me, can't let her go. And told my mom two days after, two days after that happened, I was outside the locker room at Appalachian State, told my mom, met the girl I'm going to marry. I said, how do you know? I said, she prayed for me. There was something about the, the spiritual man of God deep within me that Danielle called out by her living for Jesus. There's something in every one of the men in this congregation that desires more from God. And ladies, if you will just run ahead, there's a chance that that could be called out of them and they could lean into who God has created them to be because you give them confidence and challenge that they can do that. And that's what we see in Priscilla and Aquila. That's why we have ladies in leadership at our church. Danielle leads our worship ministry, all of it. 
That's why Jennifer Cowan leads our nursery and preschool ministry. It's why Stephanie leads our J-Kids elementary ministry, kindergarten through sixth grade. We believe women at JCI should be spiritual leaders, can be spiritual leaders, and will be spiritual leaders, not just in our church, but in your homes. It's why every now and then I have conference calls with my elders, and I have a situation where I say, listen, we need to get on a call, but I really don't want your opinion. I want your wives, so can all your wives jump on the call with us because I need to hear from some of the spiritual women in our church. This week I called one of our elders. So I've got, a, I've got an issue I need to handle, but I think your wife is better for me to talk to than you can have your permission to call her about this church business because Priscilla led strong. And Luke knew that the church would remember her. And we have some ladies in our church. You've been waiting on your husband. You've been waiting on your kids. You've been waiting on our friend. Listen, just go. You may have to get in a small group for two years by yourself before your husband trusts the process and joins. You may have to do ministry for a year by yourself before your husband realizes it's safe. He may have to see you reading your Bible and praying every day for five years by yourself before he will engage in the process. But ladies, just go. Just move spiritually and be the Priscilla if you have to be. If our ladies will lean in spiritually, I believe your friends and your families will follow. Some of your husbands, like Moses, are going to be asleep every now and then spiritually. Step in and lead. Step in and lead. Step in and lead. And then finally, in Acts chapter 18, we see once again, and we've been trying to highlight this for a while now, the impact of Bible reading. We see the impact of Bible reading in the influence and impact that a church can have. Now, before we dig into Acts chapter 18, here's what you need to understand. I believe our world today is in a scripture famine. I believe our world is starved for the truth of of who God is. And I believe even Christians don't know what to believe about anything because they don't know anything about scripture. I believe our world is living in a scripture famine. Amos said it this way in Amos 8.11, predicting a day in the future where no one, not even God's people, would truly understand the word of God. He said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine through the land, not a famine of food or of thirst for water, but a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. There's going to be a time where people are starved for direction from God because they don't have a firm grasp on God's word. And our world is in a scripture famine because our churches are in a scripture famine. It blows my mind reading the reports of first-time guests. We send them an email, say, tell us what you think about your church. How almost every other one says, I've never been to a church where a pastor teaches out of the Bible. What in the world would you do at church if you didn't open the Bible and learn from it? I, I can't even comprehend that. But we've got a world that's living in a scripture famine. And we've got Christians who are starved spiritually for the direction of God, but not in the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, we see that people were strong scripturally. Look at Acts chapter 18, verses 24 and 28, because we learn something interesting about this man named Apollos, who many think wrote the book of Hebrews. It says, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, that's northern Egypt, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. You need to underline that. And you need to challenge yourself with that. Are you someone who has a thorough knowledge of the scriptures? Look at verse 28. It says, He went to Corinth and he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures. Do you know how to prove your beliefs? Do you know how to talk about why you love Jesus? Do you know how to answer questions in a gentle and respectful way because of the scripture in your heart and in your head? Because I believe if our church will become a church that is known for people ministering to people, 
If our church will become a church that's known for women leading strong spiritually, if our church will become a church that's known for people who read and know the Bible, then our church is going to be filled with people who have the following two characteristics in their life. Reading the Bible will increase your intimacy with Jesus. If you want to be closer to Jesus, get closer to the Word of God. Because John 1 says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word of God. You want to be closer to Jesus, get closer to the Word of God. In John 17, 17, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he prays for us, all those who would believe in his name after his death and resurrection. He said, God, sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. The word sanctify means set apart, make different, make holy. God said, Christians are going to be made different are going to be set apart from the world and move closer to Jesus. How? Through the truth of God's word. They're going to read God's word. We've got a world that's living in a scripture famine, but you've got a buffet in front of you that's free to you. There are parts of the communist persecuted church world where Americans take Bibles into countries and they will go into a village in one page at a time they will rip out a page of the Bible and they'll give everyone a page because that's the only way they can actually have a physical copy of God's word. Because they don't want to live in scripture famine and we've got Bibles laying on every bookshelf in our house yet we're starved for nourishment and distant from Jesus. In Hebrews 4, the author of Hebrews put it this way, the word of God is alive and it's active. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. The word of God can change your heart, is what Hebrews 4 is saying. That's why last week we passed out the false spiritual growth plan. It's in your bulletin again today. We're challenging everyone every day to read their Bible every day from Labor Day to New Year's Day. We believe it will change your heart. We believe it will help you grow closer to Jesus. That's why 2016 is going to be the year of the Bible at Journey. We've been praying about our direction. We knew 2015 was going to be the year of Acts. 2016 is going to be the year of really learning how to study the Bible and read and understand from God's Word daily what God wants you to do. I'm asking for 100 people in 2016 to read the entire Bible with me. I'm going to create a Bible reading plan that takes you from Genesis 1 all the way through the end of the book of Revelation in 365 days. And I'm praying that 100 people from our church will step up and say, I will read the entire Bible in 2016. In every small group, we're going to talk about how to read the Bible, how to understand the Bible. We're going to walk through the Bible together because reading the Bible increases your intimacy with Jesus. But, as we see with Apollos, reading the Bible will increase your influence with people who are far from God. It will give you answers to their questions. It will teach your spirit how to respond to some of the offensive things they might say or do or think about you and your Christianity. It will shape you in a way that allows you to have impact with people who don't know Jesus. In 2 Timothy 2.15, the Apostle Paul said it this way, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. They're not ashamed of any aspect of their faith. Because they understand it and they can explain it. We have too many Christians who are afraid of what we think we might believe because of what we've been told, but we've never studied for ourselves. Paul said, that's not going to be good enough to reach a world this far from God. In 2 Timothy 3.15, the Apostle Paul puts it this way, how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You want someone in your life to come to faith through Jesus Christ? Get wise in the Scriptures and you might be able to help them understand who Jesus is. So our mission statement as a church is we exist to see people who are far from God become passionate Christians 
who make a difference in the world. How do we do that? A lot of ways. We serve them. We find out that kids in our community have needs and we're aware of those needs and we're, we give towards those needs and we work towards those needs and, and we meet some needs. This is how we reach people far from God. This is how we see people far from God. We, we know what their needs are and we try to meet them. Then we look at our own heart. We say, okay, I'm a Christian, but am I, am I an infant Christian? Am I a baby Christian who just needs milk? Or am I starting to grow up? Am I starting to get it right? Am I starting to live for Jesus? Am I starting to get in the word? Am I a selfish Christian who needs to be in a church of 83 people? So the guy who preaches to me is the only guy I ever have to communicate with. Or can I grow past that and say, I'll be a minister? Can I grow past that and say, I'll let anyone minister to me? Because everyone in the church is important in Jesus' name. Maybe you need to look around you and see who you can live in a one another ministry relationship with. Finally engage in a group. Finally engage in a ministry. Or maybe this is a year to take a deep breath, get yourself ready for 2016, the greatest year of your life, where you read the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation through, and you learn about God in a way that radically shapes your life. Or maybe, maybe you're one of the ladies in our congregation who's been waiting on your Moses to wake up and lead. And God's saying today, just go, just go. Just go, maybe he'll follow. Maybe this is your season to step in and lead. And maybe your husband, like I did when I met Danielle, maybe your husband will have the man of God deep within called out, given permission, given a challenge by how he watches you live your faith. Let's pray together this morning.